Welcome to the Supreme Court of Virginia podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Ben Glass Law and Virginia Appellate Attorney Steve Emmert. Listening to oral arguments from the Supreme Court of Virginia is one of the best ways to stay abreast of both substantive and procedural law. And today's smart lawyers know that any case, even if it is outside their practice area, can offer a learning opportunity. So, listen, enjoy, subscribe, and leave us feedback. May it please the court, I'm John Sheldon for Robert Dodd. I'd like to reserve five minutes for rebuttal. All right. This case is an appeal of a habeas petition. Uh, Dodd was charged with nine crimes, three sodomies, three aggravated sexual batteries, and three counts of indecency, all occurring over an eight to nine year period. The allegations were by his stepson, KD, and came about 15 to 20 years after the fact. Dodd was convicted on all nine counts, and he was sentenced to 79 years active sentence. Our habeas claim is that trial counsel was ineffective for failing to object to the double jeopardy violations. Dodd was prosecuted in this case, not for three distinct acts that each occurred three times, um, but for three acts, and then the jury found that they occurred, the three acts occurred perhaps three times. In the opening argument, the prosecution failed to describe nine distinct crimes. Instead, she described generally what Dodd did. When the evidence was presented, the prosecution did not attempt to delineate three different sodomies and three different acts, sexual batteries, and three different indecent liberties. Instead, the prosecution asked the victim to describe generally what Dodd did. In closing arguments, the focus was almost entirely on KD's credibility. In the closing, the prosecution didn't try to direct the jury to three distinct sodomies, three distinct ag sexual batteries, or three distinct indecent liberties. And then importantly, in the jury instructions, the court never instructed the jury that they needed to find each count separately. Instead, the court said to the jury, they read the instructions for sodomy, read the instruction for ag sexual battery, read the instruction for indecent liberty, and then the court said, there are two more charges. They read exactly the same and never instructed the jury. They, made, they needed to make nine separate findings. That's three for each type of crime. This court has received a lot of case law from the director and from me of cases that are similar. That is cases that involved identical indictments and a mix of facts. Each one, multiple cases, talk about whether the evidence clearly differentiated between the counts. And in this case, the evidence clearly did not differentiate between the counts. The closing argument in this case never focused the jury on three distinct counts within each type of crime. And the jury instruction uh, clearly didn't tell the jury what to do. The director does describe uh, facts in the record that could perhaps, uh, if parsed formalistically, form the basis for some of the counts. I don't believe there are nine separate crimes. 
Whether there are or not, however, however, isn't the question. The question is whether there's a reasonable probability that given the way the evidence was presented, given the way the jury was charged, that Dodd's double jeopardy rights were violated. And the evidence was not presented the way that the director asked you to look at it. The jury was not asked. Counsel, may I interrupt you with a question briefly? I think I just heard you say the question fundamentally for the habeas matter is whether or not his double jeopardy rights were violated. I thought the question was whether or not under Strickland, counsel was ineffective for making the argument that it was. And under Slayton, the failure to make that argument in the trial court means it can't be addressed in habeas absent ineffective assistance. So whether or not you or me or any of the judges of our courts would rule one way or the other on the underlying legal issue, the question really is, was the precedent so clear at the time of trial that that objection needed to be raised before trial to object to the statute of geophiles issue with the indictment or at trial based upon the evidence? So isn't that the issue? That's a good point. And I skipped ahead. And what I hear is really two separate issues that you've raised. The first is this is a Strickland claim. I concede that the straight up double jeopardy claim is procedurally defaulted. So I could have articulated if I hadn't jumped ahead that the issue is ineffective assistance of counsel, deficient performance, and whether there's a reasonable probability of a different result, prejudice. And in skipping ahead in going to the prejudice, a reasonable probability of a different result. Another way of articulating that in this case is there is there a reasonable probability that Dodd's double jeopardy rights were violated? And then you asked a question which I'd like to address in a couple of ways, which is, well, was there a responsibility of trial counsel in this case to object? Was there deficient performance? Another way of putting deficient performance is was trial counsel's performance unreasonable under prevailing professional norms? And the question is, when you get an indictment that has identical counts, particularly in a case spanning many years, is it unreasonable performance for a trial attorney not to object? Absolutely every case. In virtually every case that we have, and you have dozens of cases cited in these briefs, every trial counsel objected. You object to identical indictments because in every case you want to narrow the allegations and the evidence. You object to an indictment that has identical counts because of the risk that if you don't, your client will be found guilty of one crime but punished by multiple. You object in every case to identical indictments to ensure unanimity. In this case, there's no way we can determine if the jury used certain facts for certain of the counts. And in this particular case, of course you object because Dodd's main defensive trial was I didn't do it and it couldn't possibly have happened before 1994. The range of these identical indictments was from 1990 to 98 or 99. And Dodd knew prior to trial, he had definitive evidence that these acts could not have possibly occurred if they occurred at all before 
uh, KD's sister was born. And the evidence at trial was that Katie's sister was born in late November of 93. And that Katie moved down to the downstairs bedroom where these acts occurred shortly thereafter in about 1994. So if you don't object to the identical indictments, you, you have not provided the jury any way to effectuate your main trial strategy. When, when an attorney gets identical indictments, they always object to them. You always make the prosecution narrow the focus, narrow the law, narrow the evidence. If trial counsel had objected to identical indictments, Farhumand is a good case. This court decided Farhumand. It was a case that I had worked on for some time. Farhumand was a case where he had identical indictments. Trial counsel objected, and uh, the prosecution had to do what would have happened in this case. The prosecution had to uh, differentiate the indictments. And so the prosecution broke them up by date range in Farhamon and said, okay, we have four, you know, in a year. The first count will be for the first three months of the year, the second count, second three months, etc." And then in Farhamon, there was an additional issue. But that's what happened in Farhamon, and that's what happens in every case. So if the question is, was performance unreasonable to fail to object to identical indictments? It always is. There's no trial counsel in a criminal case who should allow their uh, defendant, their client, to go to trial on identical indictments. This court has a couple of cases where uh, that happened, but it just didn't matter. Um, and, and they do, however, illustrate the way of approaching this case. In Nicholson, uh, the defendant had thrown a brick through the back window of a house, ran around the house front and threw through the front. Would you hire an appellate lawyer to handle your jury trial? Of course not. Trying cases requires a different focus, a different way of speaking, even a different way of thinking from handling appeals. So why would you ask a trial lawyer to handle your appeal? When it comes time to appear in an appellate court, trust a lawyer who specializes in appeals only. Steve Emmert limits his practice to appeals. Other lawyers consult him when they face tough problems in the appellate maze. Focus on what you do best. Call Steve Emmert at 757-965-5021 direct to find out how he can help you. Again, that's Steve Emmert at 757-965-5021. The... Uh... He was indicted on two identical counts. Trial counsel did object, but the prosecution didn't differentiate those counts. During uh, the evidence, the prosecution differentiated the evidence between the brick in the front and the brick in the back. During closing, the prosecution talked about two counts, brick in the front, brick in the back. The, the court instructed the jury, you must find the defendant guilty of two separate counts. In that case, Again, this is a case where the director cites it in support, but it, I think it actually supports the analysis that we're asking this court to undertake for Dodd. Again, there was no double jeopardy violation, only because there was no chance the jury was confused between the two counts. But of course, trial counsel did object to the two identical indictments because there's no reason you wouldn't in a criminal case. You never allow your client to go to trial on identical indictments. Another case cited by um, 
the director that strongly supports this is Levitt. A similar thing happened in Levitt. Levitt was arrested on the street and kicked a police officer. He was brought to the hospital and kicked the police officer again at the hospital. Identical indictments objected to by the defendant. The prosecution never clarified them. However, the evidence at trial was clear that there was a kick on the street and a kick in the hospital. In closing, the prosecution said to the jury, you should find him guilty of both the kick on the street and the kick at the hospital. And the jury was instructed specifically it had to find, uh, consider the counts separately. In that case, on appeal, the court found there was no double jeopardy violation because there was no real probability that the jury confused these counts and found the defendant guilty of two counts, but only made one specific finding of a crime. In this case, it's almost certainly what happened. In this case, trial counsel obviously should have objected to, to all these nine, um, three within each three types of crimes, to these identical indictments, to narrow the indictment, to ensure that his client wasn't uh, at a risk of double jeopardy. And he should have made sure that the jury uh, deliberated and found three separate crimes for each type of crime. That is, if the jury, if trial counsel had ensured that the jury made nine separate findings of guilt, there's a reasonable <laughs> probability they would not have found all nine, not on these facts, not with Dodd's evidence that it couldn't have happened before 1994. Um, Mr. Sheldon, you're down below three minutes. You may use your time any way you'd like, but I'm just letting I'm you sorry. know the clock. I was looking at you all and not at the clock. I'm going to leave the rest of my time for rebuttal. All right. Ms. Bourne? May it please the court. My name is Rosemary Bourne on behalf of the director. Um, in this case, counsel was not required constitutionally to object to these indictments. There was no controlling Virginia law at the time requiring counsel to object to identical indictments. Um, particularly here where the evidence actually showed that there were multiple acts separate and distinct um, supporting each indictment. Counsel could have reasonably determined that Valentine, a Sixth Circuit case, was distinguishable and not controlling and was not required to make that argument in this case. I would note that um, on habeas, there are two cases that are cited in support of the argument that uh, this was a double jeopardy violation and that therefore counsel was constitutionally required to make this argument. One, Kleinbell did not reach the double jeopardy issue. Uh, there was no finding by the Court of Appeals, which was later affirmed by this court, that there was a double jeopardy problem in that case. In Saunders, um, I would argue is a distinguishable from this case because it involved the simultaneous possession of baggies of drugs. Essentially, it's the same crime. Here, instead, we have discrete separate acts, in essence, separate offenses. And in Carter, um, a case in which there was uh, several rapes that occurred in a short period of time, 
clearly, and that was in the Court of Appeals, those indictments would have been identical. Um, and nonetheless, uh, those are separate offenses. Um, similarly, in Myers, uh, this court, um, an unpublished case, discussed a use of a firearm um, and where the victims were not named in the indictment, but it was not a double jeopardy violation. Um, similarly, in Stevens, uh, where there was discharging uh, firearms from a motor vehicle, identical indictments did not violate double jeopardy. And so, therefore, counsel was not ineffective or constitutionally required uh, to make this argument. You know, counsel here had watched the video of um, the victim's statement to police, he had had a preliminary hearing, and he was aware of what the evidence was going to be in this case. And therefore, he was not required to ask for a bill of particulars, even though and he may not have even been entitled to one um, as a matter of right. But uh, beyond this, it is completely speculative that the court would have found a double jeopardy violation in this case, um, and that, therefore, um, he's also failed to prove Strickland prejudice. There's no reasonable probability of a different result. The uh, jury only speaks through its unanimous verdicts. The jury here was polled, and the jury found three separate um, violations of each of these three charges. And so for that reason, um, there was no prejudice, no reasonable probability of a different result had counsel made this argument. Uh, in addition, um, I would note that as to the special verdict form argument, there was no authority cited that counsel was required to request a special verdict form. Uh, in addition, the jury was polled in it, and it was a unanimous verdict. And there's no reasonable probability of a different result um, because it's based on speculation only that the jury would have reached a different verdict had uh, counsel asked for a special verdict form. Unless the court has further questions uh, for me, I would just ask that you affirm the decision of the circuit court in this case. All right, Ms. Bourne. Mr. Sheldon, rebuttal? Briefly, um, the director makes a point or argues there's no controlling law on the indictment. Um, for the last 50 years and longer, this court and every court has required that an indictment uh, is constitutionally deficient if it doesn't permit a defendant to plead his conviction in bar to any future prosecution. Um, every single court that has considered it has found that true for an indictment. Once the issue comes to light on appeal, the court looks at the law and the facts together. It is, um, uh, it is telling that this court has dozens of cases between the two parties. Not a single one pr provides a case where trial counsel failed to object to the indictment. You always object to an indictment that's broad, that's overbroad, let alone an indictment that has identical counts. You, you object for all the reasons I said, to narrow it and to uh, ensure that the evidence is specific. But you object particularly when, after the evidence comes out, 
And the evidence is general and not specific. And it covers an a eight to nine year range. And your uh, charging document is identical. Of course, you ask the court to make to ensure that the jury finds nine specific crimes. That's just fun fundamental. In this case, it's obvious because of the way the closing the evidence, the way the closing argument did not talk about nine crimes, didn't even talk about three crimes, talked about credibility. And because of the uh, instructions from the court, the jury asked the question that, of course, the jury asked. We're confused. They're exactly the same. If we find one the same, the other two are the same. Of course, there's a reasonable probability that the jury found Dodd guilty of nine crimes without making nine specific findings. And I just point out that while this court, in some instances, has, in many instances, has not put weight into jury questions, this court puts weight on jury questions when the jury is asking about an instruction that is wrong. And in this case, the jury is asking about the instructions that we're arguing these are wrong. These instructions did not require the jury to make nine specific findings. If you have no questions, then thank you very much, and we'd ask that you grant the appeal for, for uh, Doc. All right, counsel, thank you for your argument. The justices will leave the virtual courtroom and reassemble in the justices' virtual conference room at 11 o'clock. The court is in recess until 9 o'clock tomorrow morning. Thank you for tuning in to the Supreme Court of Virginia podcast. My name is Ben Glass, and Steve Emmert and I provide these oral argument audios for free as a public service. If you're a fan of the podcast, I'd love to send you my book, Renegade Lawyer Marketing, absolutely free. Just visit www.benglassreferrals.com and I'll be glad to ship it to you. This book has helped thousands of lawyers across the country improve their lives and their practices. Again, that's benglassreferrals.com. Thank you for listening, and enjoy these oral arguments from the Supreme Court of Virginia.